The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We're glad that all of you could be with us to celebrate this Easter holiday. Uh, As many of you may know, it's arguably the most important day in the Christian calendar because it's the day that we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as that video just illustrated, um, when Christ rose from the dead, he gave an entirely new meaning to that word, empty. It's kind of interesting when you think about the way that we as Christians observe this final week of Jesus Christ, which we commonly call the Passion Week, the week of his suffering. Uh, we highlight Good Friday, which happened just a couple days ago, because that's the day that Jesus died. It's the day that he went on the cross. And then, two days later on this Sunday, like we're doing right now, we celebrate Easter, because it's the day of Christ's resurrection. But we have this strange day in the middle, Saturday. And we're not sure what to do with this day, Saturday. It's an awkward filler day, right? Uh, What did you do yesterday? I'm guessing that many of you took advantage of the good weather. Maybe some of you took your family to the park. It's kind of funny because I've been asked as a pastor by church members in the past, a pastor, what is our uh, attitude supposed to be on Saturday? You know? And they say, like, are we supposed to be sad like on Good Friday? And should we be somber and not do anything fun because uh, Jesus went to the cross? Or are we supposed to be happy on Saturday because it's anticipating Easter Sunday and the resurrection? Um, I want you to imagine that first Saturday and what that was like for Jesus' disciples. Because it must have been one of the most difficult days that they ever faced in their lives. I think a strong argument could be made that none of them got any sleep on Thursday night when Jesus was arrested and tried. I also doubt any of them got much sleep the next day on Friday when Jesus was crucified. And so it's very likely that these disciples had pulled two all-nighters in a row and they're utterly exhausted. John's gospel tells us that they were hiding in someone's house. and They locked all the doors, and they were terrified for their life. And the disciples had good reason to be afraid, because in those days, when the Romans killed a rebel leader, in order to kill the entire movement and make sure that it died with the leader, they also killed all the followers. And so these disciples are terrified. They are confused. They are physically and emotionally exhausted. One moment, their master, their leader, was alive and talking about ushering in the kingdom of God. And just the week before, he had ridden triumphantly into the city as people said, Hail to the king. And before they even knew what happened, Jesus was dead. And they were hiding for their lives. John Orberg writes of that first Saturday. This isn't Sunday. This isn't Friday. This is Saturday. It's a strange day, this in-between day. 
in between despair and joy, in between confusion and clarity, in between bad news and good news, in between darkness and light. Friday was a nightmare day. Friday was the kind of day that is pure terror, the kind when you run on adrenaline. On Saturday, when Jesus' followers wake up, the terror is past, at least for the moment. The adrenaline is gone. Saturday is the day that they realize they have to go on. What in God's name happened? None of them wants to say this, but in their hearts, they're trying to come to grips with this unfathomable thought. Jesus failed. Jesus ended up a failure. Everybody knows Saturday. Saturday is the day your dream died. You wake up and you're still alive. You have to go on, but you don't know how. Worse, you don't know why. A husband, a father, wants more than anything in the world to save his marriage. His wife will not listen and will not help. He can't find out why his wife won't respond to him. And he can't stand what it's doing to his children. Heaven is silent. A mom and a dad find out the child they love has a terminal illness. They pray like crazy, but hear only silence. She's getting worse. You lose a job. You lose a friend. You lose your health. You have a dream for your child. And on Friday, it dies. What do you do on Saturday? I wonder if any of you have experienced the confusion and pain of Saturday. Before the prayers are answered, before there is a sign of hope, have you experienced the deafening silence of Saturday? If God already knew that he was going to raise his son Jesus from the dead, why Saturday? Why the wait? Saturday does seem like a pointless filler day. I mean, why not resurrect Jesus the very next day? But the truth is, much of our life is lived in this difficult in-between time of Saturday. Our scripture for this Easter service begins in Luke chapter 23, verse 50, when it says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who, was not, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. What I want to show for you in this first part of the message is the way the events would unfold after Jesus' death and show how powerfully God orchestrated things to make a loud and clear message to the world, this is my son, and everything happened according to my plan. You see, when Joseph asked Pilate for Jesus' body, Pilate was actually surprised at the request because People who are crucified normally don't die that quickly. Jesus died much too soon. In Mark chapter 15, verse 44 to 45, it says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, speaking of Jesus. 
And summoning the centurion, he asked them whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. If the resurrection of Jesus is to to be believed, then it must be absolutely certain that he died because the naysayers would come and say, you know, the truth is he never actually died. There are actually a lot of mistaken deaths that happened throughout history. He could have just been in a coma because of the unbelievable pain that he was experiencing. He could have been near death but not actually dead. But the way the events would unfold would be such that his death would be confirmed over and over again. And so even by his premature death, Pilate says to the Roman guard, I want you to double-check this body and confirm to me that he is medically dead. And sure enough, the soldier says, this guy is dead as a doornail. I guarantee you that. It's interesting that normally in order to quicken death, what the Romans would do I sort of wondered if I should share this with, with the children in the room, but I think they're old enough to hear it. And if they're too young, then maybe they won't understand. But they would break the legs of those they crucified in order not to allow them to breathe anymore. And so they did that to the first thief that was on the cross. But when they got to Christ, they found that he had already died. There was no need to do it. And so instead, a soldier pierced his chest until blood and water gushed out and said, again, this man is dead. There is no doubt about it. And that was to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah that said in Psalm 34, verse 19 to 20, the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. It's interesting that every Passover, the Jews would kill a lamb and eat it in celebration of that Passover holiday, which represented God providing a sacrifice so that his people could live. And what we know is that that Passover lamb pointed ahead to the coming Messiah. And look at the specific command that Moses gave when they ate this Passover lamb. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. And then look at what it says, interestingly. Do not break any of the bones. Regarding the fact that Jesus was pierced in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Now you see, when Jesus was alive, he could have read these prophecies that were made about the Messiah hundreds of years ago, and the truth is he could have engineered it to play into them, right? If it said that the Messiah wore a white robe, then all he has to don a white robe, right? If it says the, the Messiah would go to this place, then he just has to go to that place. But there's no way that Christ could have orchestrated these things in his death. But amazingly, even after he died, all of these prophecies end up coming true about what was predicted of the coming Messiah. 
It's interesting that early when Jesus, well, earlier when Jesus was still alive, he prophesied something about his own death. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, it says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That was Jesus' prediction about the nature of his own death. Now what's interesting is this. When Romans crucified people, after they took these bodies down from the cross, they would just dump them outside the city in a common grave, often not even bothering to bury them as a sign of the disgrace with which they were killed. And so if Christ was treated like an ordinary crucified criminal, he would not have fulfilled that prophecy. But Joseph asked for his body, and Joseph was a wealthy man. And he took the body of Jesus and buried it in a tomb that was meant for the rich. And it was like a cave carved into the side of a large rock. And so when Jesus was buried into that mountainside, it ended up fulfilling what he said, that he would be buried in the heart of the earth and rise three days later. If he was just dumped with all the bodies, how would they possibly know that it was Jesus who disappeared? But by the fact that he was buried in his own tomb with a huge rock covering it, set the stage for the miracle that would be verifiable by all who witnessed. It also fulfilled what Isaiah predicted about the Messiah. In Isaiah 53, verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Through these events of his death, in other words, it confirms not only that Jesus was categorically, undeniably dead, but it also showed that he fulfilled the prophecies that were made hundreds of years before him about what would happen to this coming Messiah. Well, in Luke 24, verse 1 to 7, the story continues, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. This group of women that went to the tomb that early Sunday morning accompanied Joseph to that tomb on Friday night when they buried him. They witnessed everything from the crucifixion to the death to the burial and they had absolutely no doubt that this Jesus that they had followed all these years was now dead. And so on that Sunday morning, they didn't go to the tomb looking for a resurrection. They didn't go to investigate if the tomb might be empty. They returned to the tomb to cover the corpse of Jesus with spices to complete the burial process. In fact, Mark tells us that as the women were walking to the tomb that early morning, that they were discussing among themselves how in the world they were going to get that giant stone out of the way in order to perfume his body because they were not strong enough. But to their amazement, when they arrive, they find the stone rolled away. And instead of Jesus' body, they see two angels lighting up the tomb like torches. 
And these angels say something rather remarkable to these women. Why do you seek the living among the dead? It's hard to miss the rebuke in their question. Why are you here looking for a dead body? Don't you believe what Jesus said was going to happen on the third day? You know, it's kind of interesting that we think that the resurrection of Jesus was supposed to catch everyone by surprise. But the truth is that Jesus talked about his resurrection a lot. It wasn't a secret. In fact, in Luke's gospel alone, there are six times that Jesus tells his disciples clearly, I am going to be killed and three days later, I will rise again. So the disciples should have known that the tomb was going to be empty. The problem is, they just didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. And so the angels rebuked these women. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? What did you come here to find? Were you thinking that his body would already begin decaying, that he would be dead? In verses 8 to 11, the story goes on and it says, And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. It's interesting, it all starts to click for the women and they remember what Jesus said when he was still alive and excitedly they realize that what he said was true and they run back to these apostles and they report what they saw at the empty tomb and the message of the angels. But these men who were closest to Jesus don't believe what the women say. It's interesting, that word idle tale that they ascribe to what the women say was actually a term that was used to describe what sick people say people who are in such extreme pain that they are literally delirious and hallucinating and they lost touch with reality. And it's that kind of babbling that this word idle tale describes. It says, we don't know what in the world these women are talking about when they say the tomb was empty, but it's ridiculous. So total was the apostles' lack of faith that they couldn't even be bothered to go to the tomb to check out the truth of the story themselves. Only Peter got up to investigate the women's report. In verse 12, it says, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. I want to return to this question that the angels asked the women when they came to the tomb. Why do you seek the living among the dead? And I want to apply it this morning to two different groups that I believe are in this room this morning. First, I want to say a word to those of you who struggle to believe in the fact of Jesus' resurrection. You know, I think the truth is it's very easy to look down on people who lived before us, especially in these ancient times, and say, well, you know, no wonder they believed that this guy rose from the dead. I mean, they were uneducated. They didn't have science at the time. And so they believed anything. They would believe in a resurrection. But I want you to notice how much doubt and how much disbelief there was even in Jesus' closest followers. These were not a bunch of stupid, uneducated, ancient people. When they heard about the empty tomb, 
They said, no way. It's not possible. Things like that don't happen. Think about how much they had to overcome themselves to believe and be convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, all four Gospels go through great pains to establish this fact that Jesus was certifiably dead and he was certifiably buried in this particular tomb and on the third day, it was found empty with a stone rolled away. Matthew chapter 27, verse 62 to 66 records this. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. Jesus talked about it so much, even his enemies knew the news. So give the order to the, for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. See, Jesus talked so openly about the resurrection that even his enemies were bracing for this attempt at a claim of resurrection. So they took these extreme measures and took a platoon of Roman soldiers to stand guard over this, and they put a seal over the stone that covered the tomb, and they did absolutely everything in their power to make sure that Jesus would stay dead. But the paradox is those extreme efforts ended up only making the resurrection that much more amazing because they couldn't explain how in the world it could happen otherwise. When we look at the history of how these events unfold, it's interesting. If there was any way to explain the claims of resurrection, both the Jewish leaders and the Romans would have jumped at it. Because what they wanted least of all was his followers to say he rose from the dead and he is who he claimed to be. But when you look at the history of how it unfolded, neither the Jewish leaders nor the Romans had an adequate explanation for the empty tomb. They couldn't give a plausible reason why the tomb was empty. And so instead, the Jewish leaders ended up bribing the Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb. And after paying the money, they said, tell everyone that his followers came and stole the body. William Lane Craig writes this, the Jews did not respond to the preaching of the resurrection by pointing to the tomb of Jesus or exhibiting his corpse, but entangled themselves in a hopeless series of absurdities, trying to explain away his empty tomb. The fact that the enemies of Christianity felt obliged to explain away the empty tomb by the theft hypothesis shows not only that the tomb was known, but it was empty. I shared some years back about this guy, Chuck Colson, who was special counsel in President Richard Nixon's administration back in the 60s. And Colson was part of this tight inner circle of powerful men who had sworn allegiance to President Nixon after the Watergate scandal. You know? And at all costs, they swore to uphold this lie that they had no involvement in what happened at that Watergate hotel when they broke into the DNC office and stole those documents. 
But what Colson says is this. Despite the high stakes of what was involved, despite the fact that they were trying to protect the leader of the free world and their own ambitious political careers, he said in a matter of weeks, all of them caved in. And one by one, everyone abandoned Nixon in order to save themselves from a lengthy jail sentence. And Colson reflects on what happened after the Watergate scandal and how despite all of their best efforts, these dozen men couldn't keep one lie intact. And thinking about that, Colson reflected on the accusation that Jesus' followers made up a hoax that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And he writes this, Is it really likely then that a deliberate cover-up a plot to perpetuate a lie about the resurrection could have survived the violent persecution of the apostles, the scrutiny of early church councils, and the horrendous purge of the first century believers who were cast by the thousands to the lions for refusing to renounce the lordship of Christ. Is it not probable that at least one of the apostles would have caved in and renounced Christ before being beheaded or stoned. In other words, what Colson thought about is, who in the world gives their life for a lie? What's in it for them? But what Colson says is, when they saw the resurrected Lord, the world was never the same again. The world shifted on its foundations, and Christianity exploded until it invaded the known world and the Roman Empire. And by the thousands, followers of Jesus were put to death in the most excruciating ways imaginable. And yet all of them testified to the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. I want to go back to that question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? I want to say that I think probably the majority of you in this room would say, you know, I believe in the facts of the resurrection. I believe historically this happened. And I, I would even guess that you are involved in a lot of Christian activities. And you do all the right things that Christians are supposed to do. But as you think about the angel's question, why do you seek the living among the dead? Can I ask you, do you know Jesus in a personal way? You may agree with all the right doctrines and enjoy everything that church has to offer. And maybe you've never had trouble believing in the facts of the resurrection. But I want to ask you, how real is your relationship with Jesus? Do you live as though he is alive and present right now with you? Because here's the truth. I worry that for a lot of us who go to church faithfully and do all the religious things that Christians are supposed to do, Jesus is nothing more than a lifeless mascot, an icon, a symbol, rather than a living person who lives in our heart. It's scary how deeply we can be immersed in Christian activities and have no actual relationship with the living Jesus. And so I want to ask you that this morning. How real is Jesus to you? When you are in need, do you actually turn to him like he's a real person there to help you? 
When you feel weak, do you ask him for strength, believing that he can actually strengthen you? When you're discouraged, do you seek his comfort and the hope that he can bring? Or in truth, is Jesus like a lifeless symbol in your life? Doesn't have any actual real meaning to you. In other words, believing in the resurrection of Jesus is not about agreeing to a fact that happened historically, but entering into a relationship with Jesus who is alive and among us even here this morning. Psalm 34 verse 8 says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. The psalmist is not describing a faith that is merely about agreeing to facts, but he's talking about the experience of knowing God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Take him at his word that he invites you into a relationship of love with him and know him in your heart. In other words, there is a place for solid arguments and presenting evidence to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but there is also the experiencing of a living God who is here this day, and when you see someone raising their hands and when you see someone weeping as they're singing praise to him, you may look as an outsider and say, wow, that's devotion, you know? That's passion. I wish I had that. But what you may fail to realize is that that person knows this living God and is experiencing what it means to be touched by him and loved by him and by faith have a relationship with him. In other words, I am alive to this living God who lives in me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 9 describes the Christian life like this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, Peter is talking to the next generation of Christians who never actually got to see Jesus when he was on the earth. And he says, even though you have not seen him with your own eyes, all you have heard are the stories of what we're telling you. You know him in your heart. And you love him because he's alive in you. And you have a relationship with him, even though you have never seen him in the flesh. And in that relationship, he has given you a living hope that this world can never take away. Peter makes it clear that just because you become a Christian doesn't mean all of your problems just magically go away. We still live in that tension of that Saturday before all of our prayers are answered. And some in this lifetime may never be answered. 
but as Christians who have followed the first generation of his disciples. That pain of Saturday is combined with the joy of Easter Sunday, isn't it? In other words, the hope that the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings makes any trial we go through in this life bearable because that hope of the resurrection is not that everything will go perfectly for me in this life, but that when I die, I know where I'm going, that there is an eternal rest that waits for me because of what Christ has done. The hope of Easter is not that we get everything we want in this life. There is pain. There is loss. There is mourning. Loved ones will die. Cancer happens. Car accidents happen. Failed careers happen. Infertility happens. But in all of this, there is a greater hope that we as followers of Jesus Christ look to that goes beyond this grave. That is why we sing. That is why we celebrate, is that that is something that nothing can touch in this world. That when I die, I will be in heaven with Christ. In a moment as I wrap up here, I'm going to ask our brother Charles Chen to come back up here, and uh, he's going to blow the shofar once again. Um, it's such a rare treat. I said, let's do it twice, you know, because <laughs> I, I, he's actually in my journey group. And so in our journey group in his basement, he blew it for the first time and I was blown away. I, I've actually tried to blow a shofar before. It is hard. You know? it, when I tried it, it basically sounded like amplified spit. <laughs> That's what it basically, I couldn't even get a tone to come out of it. Uh, Charlie, at the beginning of our service, blew a kudu shofar which is longer and more impressive and kind of in some ways more melodic. But what I asked him to blow at the close of our service is the ram's horn shofar. It's the one that the Israelites blew when the walls of Jericho fell. It's the one that the ancient Israelites used when they worshiped God and celebrated the victory that is in, in the Lord alone. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Verse 51 to 52. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, at the last shofar. For the shofar will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. As you hear the shofar, I want you to realize that that is the sound that we're going to hear one day. Whatever you may be doing, going about your day, the skies are going to break open and that sound is going to fill the entire earth. And one day Christ is going to come back to take everyone who has given their life to him. And as we think about that hope that we have in Christ, let's listen to the blowing of the shofar as we anticipate the return of our King, Jesus Christ. <laughs> 